Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here, we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like personal growth in motherhood and relationships, awareness of the ego versus the soul, the voice of fear versus intuition, We discuss what it looks like to step into your power and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I'm obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and their babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is about women taking radical responsibility for their life, shedding victimhood for good. Okay, today we have Samantha. Samantha and I are Instagram friends, which to me is a light aspect of Instagram because there's light and shadow in everything, especially in Instagram. You know, there's a lot of darkness and comparison and jealousy, but the blessings of Instagram is sometimes you can find like-minded humans across the country or world. And me and Samantha tend to share a lot of the same stuff on our stories. So I know like we're pretty aligned with things, but I'm excited to hear your story even deeper. Um, Samantha is on Instagram. It's Hello Mama Nutrition. She offers beautiful herbal and animal body products that support mama and baby. I know we're gonna try to talk a lot about a lot of different things today, but I hope it's the first conversation of many. I hope to have you back on here because there's literally like 10 topics because (laughs) we, we can, Yeah, we can go deep on, but today is going to focus on your personal journey of growth in regards to motherhood, birth, your own body health, Uh, because you've told me that you had a common American first hospital birth with the epidural, then you didn't bond with your baby for a few months, then you had severe postpartum anxiety, and a lot of that is very common. It's not normal. Not normal at all. But it's common, yeah. It's so common. But then you couldn't get pregnant for your second kid, and you took health into your own hands, and that was an amazing healing journey for you, and you're gonna share that. And you didn't go to science. No. Nope. <laughs> which is stories I love. <laughs> Eventually, you got pregnant, and you had a home birth with your son. And then we're just going to talk about your mothering journey. And right now you kind of um, single mother a few days a week because your husband lives an hour away for work. And we're going to kind of talk about that. So it's just going to be a linear journey of um, your birth stories, how it changed you, helped you grow. And it's, it's, it's your story, which to me is so powerful. Women's stories. That's why I'm doing this podcast. So do you want to do a little intro of who you are, where you were raised, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say? Yeah. Um, my name is Samantha and let's see, I was born in Pennsylvania, raised there for a few years. I lived in Florida, Mississippi, Louisiana. Um, I have two kids. Let's see. I, I was not always informed about um, nutrition and consent when it comes to motherhood. Um, that's only been recent in the past five years, so I haven't always, you know, known about about all this. My first um, pregnancy, I learned a lot, and that's what you know made me have a different mindset for my second pregnancy. 
Mm, so excited. Um, yeah, I mean, I think most of us can relate to five years ago. I feel like we've all catapulted in five years, honestly. I think so too. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's, I think it's earth energy. I think it's, I think personally it's the great awakening in myself who I was five years ago. I am so totally different and I've had the journey of not, not growing through having children, but most women do. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, do you want to start with maybe your first pregnancy, like how that was, and then your hospital birth? Yeah, so at the time, I we lived in central Mississippi, and I knew I wanted a, to have a birth at a birthing center, because um, my mom had a home birth with my sister when I was 14, and I wasn't ready for a home birth because it was my first time. Um, it, you used your first as your trial run? Yeah, basically. Well, I didn't really, oh, well, God. so I didn't really have a choice at the time. Um, birthing centers are not a thing in Mississippi. Uh, so, oh. yeah, they're not, they're, yeah, it's you either have a hospital birth or you accidentally give birth at home. That's kind of it. Well, at the, at the time. Now, because my most recent birth was in Mississippi with a midwife, but at the time, you didn't have a choice. It was hospital birth or home birth by yourself. Um, so... Uh, so yeah, so I, we lived in Mississippi at the time and I found an OB, you know, I went online, I did some research, I found an OB, she had, you know, great reviews. So that's who I ended up with. She was very nice. She didn't pressure me to do anything. She, I wasn't, I wouldn't say she was open-minded, but she, you know, didn't argue with me. She was, she, she had normal human respect for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. She didn't try to belittle me. She didn't try to guilt me. She didn't pressure me at all. She didn't she didn't make me feel like I was a terrible person for the decisions that, you know, I was making. She, you know, anytime I said, yeah, I'm not really interested, she said, okay, I just have to ask. Um, however, you know, during that pregnancy, I did do all of your, you know, normal procedures. I had the group B strep test. I had the gestational diabetes testing. I did blood work. I had the cervical checks. I mean, you name it, they did it to me. And at the time, you know, I thought this is what it was about. Nobody had warned me, even my own mother who had a home birth. She wasn't like, you know, I just thought it was normal. I thought, you know, and why would I say no? You know, it was all to benefit me or so I thought. So hold on, at the time, did you think you were informed? Did you do any like classes where you thought you were informed, but now looking back, you didn't, So you weren't? So I was, so when I was 14 and my mom had my sister, she, um, her friend um, gave her a book about vaccines. And so my mom did not vaccinate my sister. So I was aware of vaccines and the dangers of vaccines and at, when I was younger, that's when my mom started introducing us to whole foods and organic foods. And so I had a little bit of knowledge when it came to vaccines. So, you know, I, I didn't get any while I was pregnant. I was careful. Um, I was kind of careful, you know, I took my pre, I, at the time I took my prenatals, I took my omegas. I just kind of did whatever the doctor told me to. Um, but I wasn't really well informed. Uh, I never went to any of those, you know, birthing classes though. I never, and at the time I didn't have Instagram. I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have, um, anything to kind of help me with the journey. I was kind of on my own in central Mississippi. It's uh, natural births and holistic, like holistic care isn't really a, a thing there, I would say. Um, so yeah, I was kind of, sorry, on my own with that. 
Um, and then I did, so during my pregnancy, they, they also gave me like, uh, I want to say at least 10 ultrasounds at least. And I wasn't, I, I don't know. I wasn't high risk. I'm pretty sure it was just because I had health insurance. So, you know, they were trying to squeeze every little penny out of me that they could. Um, yeah, I was not high risk and I didn't know any better. I mean, I was, I was all for it. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, I, I want to see my baby. Yeah. I'm not going to say no. I mean, I like, once again, I had no idea. Um, I didn't think anything of it. Um, so I had a healthy pregnancy. Everything went well. I never like had any hiccups on my blood tests. I never, I didn't test positive for groupie strep. I didn't test positive for gestational, gestational diabetes. Um, it was like an ideal pregnancy. I wasn't tired and I, you know, I, I was start weighting tables at the time. So I had plenty of energy. Um, and then at my 38 week appointment, my OB, uh, offered to induce me and I was not high risk. There was no reason. She was just like, Hey, you know, if you want, we can induce you, you know, and you can have the baby that day. And it sounded so great. You know, 38 weeks pregnant, you're like, I'm so over this. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do this. You know, there was no, like, just to let you know, you know, there is a high risk of cesarean. There was no, Hey, just let you know it, it can cause, you know, your contractions could be more intense than if you weren't to. Like, there was no informed consent. And I'm sure when I went to the hospital, I'm sure I did sign something that, you know, maybe gave me the risks, you know, but when you're at the hospital and you're in labor, you're not, you know, you're not reading those papers. So I agreed. And um, so... Because you're like, I can be, I can meet my baby soon. So Yeah, exactly. And I was just, you know, done being pregnant. And it just was like, it was an easy way out. And there was nobody there to be like, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. Um, So I just, I agreed. And so um, the day that I was due, um, that was, oh, and, and the fact that she wasn't trying to induce me early, you know, she was like, you know, we'll just do it on your due date. It was so nonchalant. It was so... Just like she offered it up to anyone that was okay with it, and I once again didn't think anything of it. Just thought, you know, she what? How else could? Sorry, hold on. How else? You know, what they. My thought process at the time was doctors would never do anything to harm their patients because, you know, why would they? Why would anyone? I mean, that didn't make any sense to me. So, yeah. Yeah, but now looking back, it's basically all about convenience. It was 100% convenient because when she – she wasn't even there for the birth. She was scheduled to work um, on my due date, but later on that day. And I realized that's why she had scheduled me to be induced on that day. Um, so the day that I was due, I woke up. I felt fine. I took a nap and then – Around three o'clock, so I was supposed to, I was scheduled to go into the hospital at three thirty. So I woke up. It was around three o'clock, and I noticed that there was some liquid on my pillow, and I was like, "Oh, I think I think my my water must have broken." I mean, why else would there be water on my pillow? So I knew that much. Um, my labor, let's see, my contractions, they really didn't start after my water broke. I was cranky and irritable, and I you know just wanted to sit down and at that point be induced um wow your your water broke before you got induced yeah i know i literally a half hour before i was supposed to be induced my water broke and now that i look back like it was such a, a blessing in disguise and i had no idea at the time i had no idea 
Um, so we get to the hospital and they set me up in the labor and delivery room and, um, and they check me, they do a cervical check and they're like, Oh, well you're already four centimeters. So we're not going to induce you because you know, you're most likely just going to have this baby in the morning and we'll just let you go. Well, my doctor had told me during the whole pregnancy, you know, she checked me and she's like, Oh, you know, you're not dilated yet. You're not faced. You're not dilated, which I had no idea what that meant anyway. But she told me, you know, but she's like, I think what's going to happen is once you start dilating, you're just going to go. And that's exactly what happened. So around probably five o'clock, I really started having contractions. Um, you know, they strapped me with a heart monitor and they put an IV drip in my arm. So, you know, I'm sitting on this hospital bed. I have a heart, this massive heart monitor on me. I have an IV drip in my arm. I'm so uncomfortable. And then the heart monitor is right next to me and you can it's also reading my contractions so i'm literally sitting there watching my contractions every few minutes i'm just watching the lines go up and that was probably that's what made the contractions even worse you know just seeing just knowing that it was coming and there was nobody there coaching me telling me you know just breathe through it um i had back labor uh and i was in so much pain i tried taking a bath the bathtub was a joke. It, like a, a child can maybe fit in this hospital bathtub. Um, and, you know, none of the nurses were helpful. Um, it was just so many nurses. I didn't know anyone except for my mom. So they, I was in so much pain, so much pain. Uh, my mom asked them to give me some pain medication. And so they did. Not sure what it was. It knocked me out, though. I passed out. Yeah. Yep. I don't think pregnant women should be able to have medication that will knock them out. It knocked me out for a few hours. So I woke up at around, I don't know, 11 o'clock maybe. I was out for a few hours, which should, once again, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. I was in so much pain. I was like, it's fine. Just do it. But that's just so crazy because that's like the most dangerous Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Is is knocking a mom unconscious basically Mm -hmm. and – then she can't do anything primally. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, and I mean, I was stuck in that bed anyway. I couldn't move. I mean, I literally could not move. I was strapped down with that heart monitor and the IV. I mean, I, they let they let me take it all off when I went and took a bath. But I mean, as soon as I got back in bed, it was. I mean, I was back strapped to it. So they actually didn't um, stick you with pitocin. No, so I didn't. No, they didn't. I didn't end up getting induced because I had already gone to labor and they didn't want me to, they didn't want me to have that baby that night. You know, it's all about convenience. So they just, they thought that I was just going to be in labor all night and, you know, hopefully by the morning, then I'd be ready to push. So it's 11 o'clock. I wake up, they check me and they said, I'm, I don't know, maybe I was like eight centimeters. No, uh, I must've been seven centimeters because they gave me, I want to say they gave me a little bit more medicine, but it didn't make me pass out. So then around a little bit later, they came and checked on me. And I want to say I was like eight centimeters. I was right before, it must have been like eight centimeters. And so they're like, okay, well, we think that you're, you know, about about there. And they asked me if I wanted an epidural. And I said, uh, yeah, sure, why not? Because I was so drugged up from this medicine I honestly probably didn't need it, but I, I was literally, they were trying to give me the epidural. I could not sit up on my own. I could not. Somebody had to hold me up. Yes. Somebody had to hold me up. And I remember sitting there being like, 
uh, I'm sorry, I, I cannot hold myself up. I feel like I've had 10 tequila shots because that's, I felt like I was wasted. I don't think I've ever felt that wasted before. You weren't even a right, in the right mind to consent nope, to anything. Not, not even a little. And I think they knew that. I mean, they had to have known that. I told them that I felt like I had 10 tequila shots. I mean, nobody, I guess, took me serious and nobody, nobody was there to consent for me. Um, so I had the epidural. And I really don't remember much after that. I was out of my mind. Um, it took me two hours to push because I could not feel anything. Um, the only way that I knew how to push was by trying to recognize how to urinate. So I would, I'd be like, okay, Sam, try to think, try to feel how would you pee? That's how I pushed the baby out. That's why it took me two hours because I couldn't feel anything. And the only sensation that I could imagine was peeing. And so I actually ended up peeing on the nurse because I remember the nurse saying, oh, honey, try not to pee on me. And I just remember being like, what? I don't even know anymore. And so, yeah, it took me two hours to push. Um, my mom said I was basically smiling while I was in labor. She said she's never seen someone smile while pushing a baby out. But I was because that's how out of my mind I was. I was high as a kite and, you know, it didn't matter if I was popping out a baby. Yeah. So I finally um, pushed her out and they laid her on me and she latched right away. Thank God. I I, I, like once again, look back and I'm like, I can't believe she latched. I cannot believe she wasn't drugged out of her mind as well. I mean, it was amazing to me. So they took her out of my arms, um, you know, bathed her. They asked if I wanted to give her the happy shot, and I told them no. I lied, and I said, you know, I'll just get it done at the pediatrician's office. And then they asked about the vitamin K shot, and I told them no, and my husband had to sign a paper saying that we consented to not giving her the uh, vitamin K shot. Um, let's see. So I was... Hold on. It's pretty, it's a miracle. I always think that it's a miracle when your baby latched, when your baby was probably also yes. high as a kite mm-hmm. and you were, and that their primal instinct was somehow mm-hmm. still intact. I think that's an absolute miracle. Yeah. Huh. yeah. Wow. Well, so then that night, um, so I was stuck in the labor and delivery room cause they didn't have any rooms available for the next mm-hmm. like six hours so I had her at one o'clock in the morning so I was stuck in that labor delivery room until about eight o'clock in the morning and they transferred me to a room and um nurses came it was all blur once again because they kept giving me met pain I think it was pain medication that they kept giving me um they kept checking on the baby taking her away doing their normal you know testing what about the placental birth? Do you remember anything no, about that? No, not. I have none. Mm-hmm. Zero. They told me to push again, and I guess I pushed, and it came out. I, I don't. I remember very little about the birth because I was high as a kite. Um, I just remember after that sitting in the hospital room. It was cold. I was cold. I was shaking. I was, you know, my daughter was sitting in a plastic container sleeping, and I was just sitting there just – I. I couldn't even gather what had just happened. I didn't get to cherish. I didn't get to, like, I didn't, I wasn't, I like, nothing had clicked there yet. You know, like when you have a baby, you know, as soon as you see that baby, something clicks, nothing clicked for me. Um, it was just, I was just, I felt like I was just sitting in a shell. 
I don't know how to describe how I felt. I just, I didn't feel like I had just given birth to a baby. Um, and then a few hours later, we were able to go home. Um, that was fine. Uh, my breast milk came in probably 24 hours after I had her. Um, and all was good for a few months. I think I had, I, I don't even know. I think my recovery, my postpartum recovery wasn't ideal either. Um, my mom, you know, came to visit and helped me out for a few, uh, for a few weeks. And she, at the time was mostly holding the baby. The baby was in the swing. Um, I really didn't hold her unless I was feeding her. And at the time I didn't really mind. I just, you know, I didn't feel this bond and I loved her, but I didn't feel this like motherly connection. So my mom was holding her a lot. She was in the swing a lot. Um, I had used the wrap a few times when she was cranky, but other than that, and then two weeks after I gave birth, we went and drove down to Florida so we could baptize her and my family could meet her. And, you know, that once again, you know, everyone was really holding the baby except for me when it was time to feed her. Uh, We were in Florida a week, came back, and then I think that's like really when it set in was my postpartum anxiety. And I started having like, you know, when you first have a baby, you do have you know, you're scared for your baby, you know, you're afraid of, you're afraid to walk the streets, you're afraid to drive in a car, you know, that's all normal. But my rational fears really just kind of kicked it up a notch to where I didn't really want to leave the house. I, you know, was, my eyes were glued to her at all times. I was, you know, afraid that she was going to die in her sleep, you know, all of these normal fears, but they were escalated to the point where it just like, like I wow did you sleep then because adrenaline like that lot sometimes you can't sleep um I slept but I wasn't you know I I was going to bed late waking up early um I was co-sleeping I will say that out of everything I think the co-sleeping saved me I think I was able to bond a little bit better with her um through the co-sleeping how did you kind of know to do that um it was that was just that was just instinct I just you know, at the time I had a bassinet for her and the bassinet, I just looked at that bassinet. I was like, she's not sleeping that thing. That's no, but for some reason I would, I just knew that babies don't belong in their cribs. So she slept with us, you know, she slept on, you know, my side where I didn't trust my husband. I, you know, he sleeps like a rock. Um, so yeah, that's the one thing I would say that came natural to me was the co-sleeping. I did have, did you go to, did you go to any, um, doctor visits? <sighs> <laughs> yeah. So I went to your typical six week postpartum appointment and they just, they asked me a few questions. They asked me, you know, if I wanted to go on birth control, they asked me, uh, they made me fill out a survey if I was depressed and I wasn't. Um, and I didn't realize, I actually didn't realize I had anxiety for two years. Um, but none of those questions were relatable to anxiety. They were all relatable to being depressed. Like, you know, are you are you worried about harming yeah. your baby? Are you worried about harming yourself? And no, I just was anxious, but you know, the, there was no relatable questions. So yeah, I went to your typical eight week appointment. Um, I went to the PD, the um, pediatrician visits and you know, same thing. They were trying to vaccinate my baby and I said no. And uh, thankfully they didn't, they weren't, the doctor that I saw was not very, he was somewhat understandable. Um, but then after that appointment in the state of Mississippi, if your child's not vaccinated, you are not allowed to step foot in most pediatrician offices. 
Yes. So I had to go to a clinic, a pediatric clinic an hour away if I needed to see the pediatrician because none of the local ones would take it just because my child was not vaccinated. It was, I, it, it honestly, it's discrimination and it's, it's sick. I mean, if my child's sick, you're saying that I can't go see a doctor because they're not vaccinated. I mean, but that's Mississippi for you. I mean, Mississippi, like my child, like I have to homeschool because my child is not allowed Sorry, hold on. Because my child's not allowed to go to school. But my child's allowed to do sports. My child's allowed to go, you know, into stores. My child's allowed to have normal day-to-day activities. But my child can't go to school because she's not vaccinated. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Wow. So how did how did you kind of get a handle on the postpartum anxiety? Like, did you ever recognize what it was or did it just eventually heal and fizzle out? Okay, what so um, for my postpartum anxiety, so I was having irrational thoughts. Um, they lasted about two years. And then I want to say I that's when I first found the Weston A. Price Foundation. Just I just happened upon them. And I remember reading something about postpartum anxiety and omega-3s. And I was like, what? No way. And so I did more digging. And I read up on, yeah, postpartum anxiety. So what happens when you're pregnant is if you're not getting enough omega-3 in your diet, the body will take omega-3s from your brain and it will transfer it to the baby. So if you're not getting omega-3s, what's happening? You're just being depleted. And that's a huge trigger for postpartum anxiety. Um, so I started supplementing with omega threes and I also learned, sorry. Um, so I started, I started researching postpartum anxiety. Um, and you know, there was some advice. So five years ago, I feel like there really, I feel like there wasn't that much information when it came to nutrition. Um, so let's see. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's kind of, is that, is that where you, your health journey really yeah because when I was pregnant I ate okay but once again I didn't know anything about pregnancy nutrition when I went to see the doctor you know she gave you your typical don't eat red meat or don't eat rare meat you know stay away from sushi stay away from raw eggs well you know just your typical advice she wasn't like you know you should be eating plenty of protein you need to be eating plenty of omega-3s to avoid postpartum anxiety and depression um it was really just what not to eat Um, so then during my postpartum, it was kind of the same thing. You know, they don't explain to you what you should be eating, how to support breast milk supply. Um, so that was the other thing about having postpartum anxiety. I totally lost my uh, breast milk supply gone. Just, I struggled and struggled and struggled, but never once did anyone ever say, you should go see a lactation consultant. That was never like, that was not on my mother's mind, no relative, no friend, um, no doctor, no, do- not one doctor. I went and saw a doctor for my postpartum anxiety. Do you think that they would have mentioned that? No. They basically said I was crazy. Is kind of what I felt. They're like, look, nothing's wrong with you. We can't find anything wrong with you. Your blood work's fine. You know, if you want, we can put you. That was my first. That was my first line of business. I went to see a doctor, and they, and that's what they had said. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. Your blood work's fine. You know, you just had a baby. It's normal to feel these things. And when I left, I was like, this is not normal. This is not normal. This cannot be normal. So that's, yeah. So that's when I like happened across the Weston A. Price Foundation. And um, so I started taking, 
Why, why do you, what with your diet, why do you think you lost? Um, because I just wasn't eating right. So I was, I was not eating enough. So when you're breastfeeding, I was not drinking enough water and I was not eating enough. And when you're, you know, feeding a tiny human, if you're not eating, how is, you know, how is your body supposed to create breast milk? Um, so between my diet and my mental health, my breast milk just completely dried up. Um, so as I, I began supplementing with omega threes and after two weeks, I started to feel better and not sure if it was a placebo effect or if it was truly the omega threes. Um, but it worked. So I, those omega threes helped me. I got out of this fog. I felt like after those omega threes started, you know, entering my bloodstream and started kicking in, I finally like that fog lifted and I was like, Oh my gosh, what I've, uh, I, I don't What, what source did you like getting omega threes? Oh, like um, fish, fish oil, oil capsules. Yeah. So I was taking the fish oil capsules and it, it worked. I don't, to this day, I can't believe it worked. So I get out of this brain fog and I realize, you know, I have postpartum anxiety and I need to deal with it and a doctor is not going to help me. Then nobody can help me because this is my own issue. So I did dug more, dug more into postpartum nutrition and I happened across this school that offered certification for postpartum for pregnancy and postpartum nutrition, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this school. I have to learn how to fix myself. And I want to learn how to fix other women. I want to help women because I know I cannot be the only one. I know. I know. And I tried going onto those mommy forums. Those places are disgusting. Those, those are, I feel like if you have postpartum anxiety or depression, you should not go on those forums because they just make matters worse. Those moms on there have nothing better to do but criticize others. And it's, it's quite sick, actually. So um, I take this certification, prob- or certification program and she dabbled in postpartum depression, anxiety. For depression, she mostly said, you know, we as, you know, health coaches can't really do anything for women, which... I beg to differ on some level. Um, And then for um, postpartum anxiety, I had learned, you know, omega-3 deficiency, um, you know, lack of village was a huge one. Um, Lack of saturated fats, massive. I mean, that goes along with omega-3s. And I was also taught about pregnancy nutrition and how 99% of pregnancy and postpartum issues come from diet. I mean, it, it might really be 100%, but I think that 1% is mental health, for sure. Um, so, yeah. So, I healed myself with postpartum anxiety. I followed the guidelines that, you know, she had placed. And, you know, I kind of added a few of my own. I went outside every day. I started walking. I started eating better. I cut out ugh, cutting out sugar, refined carbs and sugars. Wow. I mean... Wow. I had baby weight and it took me forever to get it off. And as soon as I cut that out, it came off, came off. And my brain fog just like completely disappeared. And so then let's see, two years, it took me a few months to get out of the anxiety. So at this point, you are eating whole foods like veggies, fruits, meats, dairy. Yes. Right. Um, the other thing that I started putting into my diet was kefir, which is fermented milk. 
fermented yogurt. And uh, that I didn't realize at the time my gut was also had taken a beating from not only my hospital birth, but also my mental health. And uh, that kefir, I mean, if I can recommend one food for everyone, it would be fermented kefir or fermented dairy products. Um, yeah. And wow. I actually, I had to give my daughter formula around six months because that's when my breast milk dried up. And she ended up getting not digestive issues, but she started showing symptoms on her skin that her digestive health was in not great shape from it. As soon as I started giving her that kefir, gone. Gone. It was magic. And the kefir did have sugar in it. And they say, you know, when you have digestive issues to avoid sugar. But, I mean, that there was barely any sugar in it. But, yeah. So, for those moms out there that their kids are having digestive issues, fermented dairy for us was a lifesaver. Yes. Um, okay. Cool. So, let's see. Um, yeah. So postpartum anxiety. So I got my certification and that's like really when I started diving deep, that's when I got an Instagram account and I was like, all right, I'm going to go out there and help women, you know, figure out, you know, try to help them with their pregnancy and postpartum nutrition. And wow, at the time, this was three years ago, I have to say the movement has grown, but three years ago, it was just the beginning of the pregnancy postpartum nutrition and uh yeah that knowledge was not out there so um and i was sort of sort of so (laughs) well kind of kind of just i don't know taking weston price messages probably too yeah weston price i mean if anyone's ever curious on where to start the weston price foundation has so much free information in their podcast amazing i mean they have so many amazing guests on there i mean that's like whenever somebody has questions i'm like look just go to weston a price foundation you got to do your own research they have plenty of it go read their books they have let's see i have two of their recipe books amazing i mean and simple you don't step by step you know nothing complicated um everything's very basic and they have all you know if you you know and it's all nutrient dense it's all classic food from what our ancestors ate um okay so let's see i fixed uh yeah so i basically healed my postpartum anxiety and then two years later covid the whole covid era hits and put me right back where i started um uh, i refused to wear a mask and so that right there gave me anxiety because every time I walked into a store, I had to battle whoever was guarding the door and tell them that I was, you know, I couldn't, you know, because I, I told them, um, you know, I would be like, look, I have asthma. I didn't really, I have asthma. I can't wear a mask. Um, I'm sorry. Like, I don't have to tell you, you have to let me in. I have medically exempt. Um, so that right there, like anytime I went to a store would put me, would, put me one step back because I had so much anxiety and then just you know the unknown I kind of you know was aware of what was going on and that depleted me um I didn't have postpartum anxiety but I did have anxiety again and then let's see I got pregnant in April of 2021 and I had a miscarriage and I didn't think anything of it at the time Because, you know, just some women have miscarriages. It happens, you know. It's just your body telling you it's not ready or something was amiss. Um, 
So I didn't take it to heart. Um, I waited a few months and we tried again. I had another miscarriage and I was like, what the heck? Um, I was, you know, a little, I was still stressed out at the time and I had started to notice that my blood pressure was, seemed to be getting a little bit higher than normal. My ears were ringing. Um, I couldn't wear like anything tight because it would make me feel dizzy. Um, I was getting headaches and then I started drinking more because I was stressed out and drinking actually helped with the headaches. And so then that depleted me even more because, you know, between drinking and stress, you know, that, that will, you know, that depletes your minerals. Um, and then I had gotten a bladder infection. I want to say I had, so in between that I had gotten a bladder infection and I went, they gave me antibiotics. Well, the antibiotics, I've never, I'm, they gave me, they, I don't remember what it's called. Uh, ner- they gave me neuropathy. It started in my hands and would travel up my, to up my arms. And then it would go to my feet and then it would go to my legs. So then I went to the doctor and I said, hey, you prescribed me something gave me neuropathy and she's like, well, you know, I can do some blood work, but that's really the only thing I can do. So I said, okay, cool. So went onto the computer. It turns out that neuropathy, when you take antibiotics, can be caused by magnesium depletion, which I 100% had mm-hmm. between being stressed out and drinking. And then the antibiotics just put me over the edge. I was magnesium deficient. So I went and bought a magnesium supplement and Every day for two weeks, I soaked in Epsom salt. Um, That did it. My neuropathy went away. So then we decided to try again. I had another miscarriage. And I was like, okay, that's it. There's something going on with my body. I need to figure out what it is. Um, After that third miscarriage, my period just stopped coming. I stopped ovulating. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I still got my period, but I did not ovulate. Or I was ovulating I mean, when you get your period, I mean, you, I don't, I think you can still get your period and not ovulate. Whatever was happening, I was not ovulating, but I still had my period. Yeah. Um, so I went on to the computer and I was like, okay, let's see. I knew nothing really about the human body. I really don't know anything about hormones. I really don't. I feel like, you know, the science behind hormonal health is just, it's too dense for me. So usually what happens when you have miscarriages around the four week mark it has something to do with your progesterone. So when your egg finally attaches to the wall of your uterus, progesterone is what keeps it from, you know, basically falling off of your uterine wall. And so I figured out that it was my progesterone levels, which is caused by liver health, stress. You know, it could have been really anything. For me, I knew it was stress. And your your emotional stress from, like, you think at that yeah. time, COVID. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I was drinking a lot. You know, I feel like everyone was drinking a lot during that time period to kind of cope with the stress because nobody knew what was going on. Um, And then, you know, I had that, um, I had that um, trigger from the antibiotics. And so I just like knew my body was messed, but I did, I did figure out that it was my progesterone. And so 
I still didn't go see a doctor. I did more research and, you know, they had those bioidentical creams for progesterone. I was like, no, 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 those don't, there's something about that doesn't seem right. Like, I don't want to be getting my hormones from a, a yam. That's, I have to figure out how to get my progesterone up without doing that. Um, so I really didn't take it seriously. I mean, I was eating a little bit better. I stopped drinking. Um, and at some point I think I just kind of gave up. And so then the next year gave up, gave up trying to get pregnant or gave up even correcting the fertility issue. I was just like at that point, yeah, my anxiety was just, I was just like, you know, if I'm not meant to have a baby, you know, you have that mentality like, well, you know, if I'm not meant to do something, I'm not meant to do that. Okay. Well, that's, you can't have that mentality because you got to fight for it first and then just keep trying and trying. And if it doesn't happen, well, it just doesn't happen. But I feel like so many people have that mentality, like, you know, well, it's not meant to be. No. How do you know? Just keep fighting. So, wait, sorry. Hold on. I kind of just gave up and I was like, you know what? <clears throat> I have so much going on in my brain right now. I just need to relax. I just need to not focus on getting pregnant. Obviously, it's not meant to be. God does not want me to have a baby right now. Um, so, then March comes around through Mrs. Carriages later. And my husband for Christmas got me a spa package for uh, at a naturopath's office, which I thought was super weird. Never heard of such a thing, but I was like, okay, let's do this, whatever. I could use it. Maybe this will help me get pregnant. Maybe this will help me relax. So I go with um, my best friend and we go to this spa of sorts. And mom, part of the, part of the um, spa package was a raindrop therapy, which is basically essential oils being undiluted, undiluted essential oils being dropped onto your spine and then they put a hot cloth over you. Um, and at the time, I was just learning about the dangers of essential, the precautions of essential oils. And I was like, you know what, it's fine. What's one time of essential oils? I didn't know that they were undiluted either. I had no idea. Um, so I'm laying there, she's putting, she's dropping the essential oils onto my spine. Um, she puts the hot blanket on me and then she leaves me alone. She walks out. So then all of a sudden I have this like, I start feeling this like throb under my rib cage on the right side of my rib cage. I'm like, Oh God, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I mean, literally like within like minutes of her doing this, I felt my, my rib cage start to throb. Um, so then it kind of just like intensifies little by little. And 15 minutes later, she comes in, she takes the, the blanket off of me and, and she's like, all right, she's like, you know, I'm going to put you in the sauna. And I was like, okay. So I get into the sauna and I'm in there for about 10 minutes and my rib cage, you know, feels slightly better. Um, I get out and I just like, I feel it again, like this rock just sitting under my rib cage. And I'm like, what is this? And I, and I told her and she's like, yeah, you know, depending on, you know, areas in your body that may need a little bit more attention. She's like, you know, sometimes stuck energy, yeah, it looks different than everyone. She said, for me, it's my ovary. So every time I do one of these raindrop therapies, it's always my left ovary because, um, you know, I have, she had some issue. I don't remember. She's like, you know, I have issues with my left ovary. And I said, okay, well, still strange, but okay. So then a few days later, it just intensifies every day, intensifies, intensifies, intensifies. Um, I can't lay down on my right side. I can barely drive. I mean, I can barely function. And I was not gonna step foot in a doctor's office because I didn't even wanna know. I I didn't even wanna know what they were gonna tell me. Maybe I was in denial, but I was like, I'm not stepping foot in a doctor's office. 
Um, I, you know, used the internet once again and I figured out it was my liver. My liver must have been inflamed. And I was just like, I don't, like, I was like, well, maybe I'm just drinking too much and drinking essential oils just aren't, you know, they just don't go well together. So I went back to her and I said, look, I said, you know, after you did this raindrop therapy, my liver has become so inflamed that I can't even lay down. I can't function. It's getting in the way of my day-to-day routine. And so she goes, okay, well, you know, let's, she's like, I'm going to hook you up to a Zyto and we're going to, you know, get to the bottom of this. So she hooks, she pulls out this little machine and I put my palm on it and it's supposed to read your, your energies, your, your energy meridians. So she, this little machine reads my palm and all of a sudden all this information gets uploaded to her computer and it reads your energy. It reads your nutrient. It reads your mineral levels. It reads your hormone levels and it reads your vitamin levels. So according to this machine, my minerals completely deficient, which I kind of assumed because of my stress levels. Um, so all of my minerals deficient, like, so it's, it doesn't give you a number. It gives you levels. So I had no level, like it was just white. Um, my progesterone, same, there was no level. It was, it was negative. Um, my liver, it, it was, so when it reads your organs, it's, it's different. So my liver was inflamed. Like it was, I mean, it was, it was inflamed. And as well as my pancreas. And then when I did research, your pancreas is what produces your hormones, but it's connected to your liver. So my pancreas was also in, in the energy level of my pancreas was not where it should be. And neither was my liver. Um, so she's like, I'm going to give you some tinctures and it should help with your stress levels. It should help, you know, it's going to put you into a liver detox. It's going to help with your pancreas. And I was like, okay. I was like, well, what about my inflamed liver? And basically she said, you know, your liver, it makes sense that your liver is inflamed and you're having issues with liver. And she said that the raindrop therapy will, what it's supposed to do is balance your energy. And that's why it affects my livers because my stuck energy was in my liver. So she said, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you some um, tinctures, but I'm also going to give you a test of sorts. She said, when the body is telling the truth, it tends to lean forward. And when it's, no, when it's telling the truth, it tends to lean back. It's, it's muscle testing and yeah, your, your, your body can change up the yes and no. So typically practitioners say, body, show me your yes. And so it could be forward or backwards. So for her, it was backwards. Show me the yes for backwards. So she asked me some questions about my body and, you know, nothing was wrong internally. So it was my energy. So she had asked me about my relationship with my family and I like leaned back a little bit and I was like, okay, you know, once again, I'm not sure this could be placebo. It could, I don't know. So I leaned back a little bit and she, she said, you know, okay, is it with your husband? And you know, it wasn't my father. Yes. And then she came to my mother and I leaned backward and I was like, oh, she goes, you know, how's your relationship with your mom? And I said, well, I mean, I, it's, I don't know. I mean, I guess she's, she's my mom and I love her, but she can be kind of hard on me sometimes and judgmental and, 
So then she continues to ask me more questions. And at the end of it, we came down to my mother was a huge root cause to my stress levels. And I thought all this time that my anxiety was from, you know, my postpartum and then, you know, from COVID and, you know, just feeling, no, my mother, she, after I left the doctor's office, I, I sat there, I sat in my car and I, and I just thought about my mom and I thought about our relationship and she was my trigger. Our relationship was not ideal. So I went home, started taking my tinctures. Um, I felt better. I bought um, desiccated liver capsules and I also um, bought supplies for a castor oil pack. And I decided that I'm going to detox my liver. So that's what I did for a month straight. Did the castor oil pack. I took my desiccated liver um, capsules and I took tinctures and my liver pain went away. Um, Didn't you use sunshine? Well, so not yet. So this was after, this was after my inflamed liver. Or so this was during my inflamed liver. So the liver inflammation went away, but I still did not ovulate. And so then I finally, you know, came to the conclusion, okay, I need to accept that my mom's a trigger and that I have to, I have to set a boundary for myself because, you know, I'm still not ovulating. I'm still, there's still something missing. I knew that there's something missing. So I, I called my mom up and we, you know, I tried telling her, you know, in the lightest way that she was my trigger. It didn't go over well. So whatever. I got that off my chest. So I felt better. So then a few months came by and I still haven't ovulated and we had just moved into a new house. So I was like, okay, I need to get serious about my fertility because it's been eight months. It was seven months, I think at the time. And I still got period and I, you know, was out of this brain fog that you tend to get into when you have anxiety. Um, And I went online and I did more research. So I looked up um, your liver and um, fertility and your liver. If you have a sluggish liver, that I mean that right there, it can be a huge contributor contributor to infertility as well as your pancreas. So I said, okay, I'm going to continue doing the castor oil packs and I'm going to, I stumbled upon, oh, at the time, let's see. Uh, it was such a sign. So every day or, you know, every week I try to listen to a West Nape, um, Price Foundation podcast. So I listened to a podcast about soma breathing and soma meditation. And I was like, okay, this is a sign. Um, so I went out. So I decided I'm going to go outside. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to go in sunshine, you know, because sweating is supposed to help, you know, open up your detox pathways. So I went outside. I meditated four or five times a week. Um, and I was doing the castor oil packs four or five times a week. And I kept this up for a month. And after that month, I, I don't know, I was probably sitting on my couch and I, I swore I felt myself ovulate. And I was like, surely not. I've only been doing this for a month. Surely I could not have ovulated after 30 days. You know, it just seems too quick after not have ovulating for eight months. Um, and, you know, at the time we weren't, you know, being cautious because I was ovulating and I wasn't expecting to ovulate. And I was like, oh man. So two weeks later, I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. And I was like, no freaking way. No way. So I did ovulate. Um, but I didn't keep track of when I had ovulated. 
because I wasn't sure at the time. I think I was just in so much disbelief. Um, so yeah, I ended up getting pregnant and I went to the doctor's office to confirm it. And it was indeed, I was six weeks along and yeah. Didn't you have, didn't you have like some anxiety? Um, because man, this is a pregnancy after three miscarriages. Yes, absolutely. So I was still in disbelief. I thought like every day I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have a miscarriage. I'm gonna have a miscarriage. I know it. Like there's no way that after eight months of not ovulating and becoming pregnant right away that I was not going to lose this baby. So in the state of Louisiana, if you want to go see a midwife, you have to see an OBGYN first. So I called around to a few offices because I wanted my pregnancy confirmed and I wanted to um, get an ultrasound. I think I like, even though I have learned about the dangers of ultrasounds and radio waves, I, I didn't care. I wanted to see this heartbeat. So two doctor's offices, offices later, they told me that they would not transfer me to a midwife. And so then by that time I was like, okay, so I don't think I'm going to speak to anyone that transfers, that will transfer me to a midwife. So I called up an OB, or I called up an office and they booked me an appointment. I didn't say anything about, you know, wanting me transferred. So I get there, you know, I fill out my paperwork and I finally, well, so while I'm sitting in the room, I hear the OB say to this lady, you know, you're diabetic, you know, it's just stay away from sugar. You can drink, eat all the diet food you want, but you need to stay away from sugar. And I was just like, oh my God, who am I about to go see? <laughs> who is about to come, come talk to me? So he walks <laughs> in the room and right away he's just cocky. And I'm just like, oh man, oh man. So he starts asking me questions and it's like, oh, I see you had three miscarriages. And I said, yes. He said, okay, well, what we're going to do is I'm going to advise you to take a baby aspirin, just a little baby aspirin, you know, just, you know, a lot of times, you know, miscarriages happen because of blood clotting and this will just, you know, make sure that that doesn't happen throughout your pregnancy. And I said, really? And, you know, this is five years, you know, I've been, you know, I've been studying pregnancy nutrition. I've been studying, you know, pharmaceuticals and their side effects with pregnancy and postpartum. And baby aspirin is a huge no-no. And he said, you know, yeah. He's like, you know, in five years, you know, every pregnant woman's going to be taking baby aspirin. So it's really not a big deal. And I'm just like, oh, okay, sure. Why not? So then, you know, he goes through the routine. He doesn't once ask me about my diet. He doesn't want once ask me about, you know, my mental health. He doesn't ask me, you know, he doesn't ask me, um, you know, really about my medical history in general. He just assumes that I'm clotting and that, you know, I need a baby aspirin. He's like, so let's, let's just do blood work. And then, you know, but first I'm giving you ultrasound. And I was like, yes, this is what I wanted. So we go, I see the baby's heartbeat. I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I leave, I do not get blood work done. I'm like, um, this is not happening. I'm not sticking. I'm not, I'm just going to go see midwife. Well, lo and behold, you need to go get your blood work done before you go see midwife as well, because that is one step that they could possibly trap you in. So in Louisiana, if you have, if your iron levels are not where they want them to be, you cannot see a midwife. If you have had a previous cesarean, you cannot have a midwife. If you're at risk for preeclampsia, if you have just know about diabetes, basically if you don't have a healthy pregnancy, you cannot have a midwife. 
And so I went back to a different OB. I got my blood work done. Everything was fine. And at the time, I think I was nine weeks pregnant and no miscarriage. And it was, it was a miracle. Were your miscarriages prior to that, like six weeks? No, they were four weeks. And so what happens? Yeah. So four weeks, when you have a miscarriage at four weeks, it's your, it, from what I've read and learned, it is going to be your progesterone levels because I was, I had that positive pregnancy test at four weeks and then literally a day or two later, I would have a miscarriage. So if I wouldn't have taken those pregnancy tests, I probably wouldn't have known that I had a miscarriage, honestly. And I think that, you know, God designed it that way to, you know, for women that have miscarriages, you know, before pregnancy tests were a thing. Um, yeah. So then I found a midwife who was awesome. Um, but I was, I had some anxiety, so I was still was stressed out and we learned that we had to move. And so that just put me on a different level of stressed out. Um, And so, like, my mindset during the beginning of that pregnancy was like, oh, my God, I'm going to end up getting preeclampsia or hypertension. Um, You know, doctor's offices, I had white coat syndrome, major white coat syndrome. Um, When I went and saw the OB for the last time, I had my blood pressure was like 130 over 86 or something. And for, you know, you'd have hypertension technically when you're pregnant, it's 140. It's higher than 140. And so I said, you know, how's my blood pressure? Because she didn't, she didn't tell me. But I had kind of known that my blood pressure was high at the time because you know, I was nervous. And she goes, yeah, you know, it's 130 over, you know, 90. And I said, okay, well, you know, do you think that I'm going to end up having hypertension? And she's like, well, we don't worry about that until 20 weeks. And I'm just like, so you don't care if I have high blood pressure before that, but as soon as I hit 20 weeks, then it matters. Like, shouldn't you be, you know, prescribing something or, you know, giving me some recommendations? No. So then when I went to my midwife, I told her, you know, told her about the OBs. I told her about my fear of hypertension. Um, but I also told her that, you know, look, if I do have hypertension or preeclampsia, I'm not having a hospital birth. I'm not like, I was that traumatized from my hospital birth. I said, you know, I will give birth at home. Um, but also because you probably knew the Weston A. Price information about salt and protein with preeclampsia, um, right? Yeah. That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not just um, Weston A. Price, but there's um, – it's called the Dr. Brewer's Diet. And ironically, you cannot find oh, yeah. a book on the Brewer's Diet anywhere. You can really not find that information online. I mean, that information is so hidden. And there is one lady – I don't know if she's related to him. She does have a website that is based on the Dr. Brewer's diet that explains everything from protein to salt to um, other pregnancy conditions. Um, But yeah, so I had learned about the Brewer's diet. And yes, I knew about protein and salt. And but even still, even still, I was worried about having hypertension, even though I was eating well, it didn't matter. I was still freaked out by hypertension because you can eat, eat, eat all you, you can eat the healthiest diet in the world. But if your mental health is not in line with your physical health, I mean, it can throw your physical health off. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because you, you still had stress because you had the stress of, um, carrying this Mm -hmm. baby to full term and then your husband's Mm going to be moving. So what did you deal with? How did you deal with that Um, mental stress? 
I just meditating out I was outside I did get a gym membership and I was making sure that I was at that gym twice a week um, I had a midwife and she, I had told her about my worries and I said look when I am even when I'm in your office even though I trust you and even though I feel somewhat safe you know I still my blood pressure rises and I know it's a mental thing but you know I don't I I do not want to have a hospital birth and so she's like, okay, look, I'm going to give you this cuff link and I'm, you're going to take it home and you're going to take your blood pressure in a relaxed state for the next week. And then I want you to take a picture of it three times a day and send it to me. And that's what I did. And I didn't have high blood pressure. I, I was just uncomfortable. And so then that made me think how many women do not actually have high blood pressure, but it's just assumed because they have white coat syndrome or they're uncomfortable or they had just... You know, they were just running around or, you know, high blood pressure is not when, when you have high blood pressure at a relaxed state, that's when it's dangerous. But I'm not sure how many doctors are out there explaining to pregnant women, you know, it's okay to have, have. Yes. Yes. So where are you at with, with researching the truth about Um, birth? So I didn't have to do really much research. Um, so during my five years of not being pregnant, you know, I got my Instagram account. I went and got certified for this, um, you know, pregnancy and postpartum nutrition. And so I had my Instagram account and I found, um, you know, birthing Instagram accounts are like a dime a dozen now. Um, so, you know, I've watched all these videos of women giving home births, water births, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is what's happening. This is what I'm doing. You know, all these birds look so peaceful and not traumatic and there's no doctors or nurses harassing them. They're not strapped down. You know, they're in the comfort of their home. They have candles lit. You know, they're in a dark room, a dark setting. You know, they can eat, they can drink. Um, so that's, you know, that also helped kind of keep, give me peace of mind knowing that I wasn't going to have a hospital birth. So that was part of like my mental health check was knowing that I was not going to give birth in a hospital, that I was going to have total control, that I was not going to be medicated, that my midwife was going to be there and she was awesome. And she had, you know, she was not going to pressure me into anything. And, you know, she agreed that, you know, my crazy idea. Well, so, you know, while I was seeing my midwife, I told her I'm not getting tested for group E strep. I'm not getting, I'm not testing for gestational diabetes. I'm not getting any blood tests. That's not required. I said, no cervical checks. I said, I'm going to come in. I'm going to talk to you. We're going to discuss whatever you feel like we need to discuss. And that's it. And she said, okay. She's like, you know what's best. And I said, okay, that's exactly what I want. Thank you. And so I saw her for a few months. Um, and we thought that we were going to be moved by the time I gave birth. Um, so I had to switch over midwives. So I found one in Mississippi and she, so we're supposed to move, we haven't moved yet. So we're supposed to move to central Mississippi. And I said, okay, well, just in case, you know, will you give, will you come down to Gulfport, which is where my in-laws live? And would you deliver my baby at my in-laws house? You know, worst case scenario, if we aren't moved. And she said, yes. So this midwife, she was even better. So in the state of Mississippi, okay, so in Louisiana, uh, midwives technically have to be licensed and certified. They're regulated. I mean, they are heavily regulated. And so in Mississippi, it's the opposite. Anyone can claim that they're a midwife. So I found this midwife. She was awesome. She has 20 years of experience. 
And I had told her all of my wants and needs and she, she didn't question me either. She was like, look, you know, it's your body, you know, it's best. Um, and in the state of Mississippi, so if I were to have hypertension preeclampsia, I could still give birth in a home setting. Now my midwife may not agree with it, but she would still be there because she could legally be there. Um, and so that right there, knowing that helped my stress levels, knowing that my midwife could be there no matter what. Because in Louisiana, my midwife said, you know, if you have hypertension, you can give birth at home, but I can't be in that house. I, I cannot be in the realm of you because I can get my, my license taken away. And I said, okay, so that, that, you know, that didn't help my stress levels. So then when I switched. Well, yeah, also, also with licensed midwives, if you go past 42 weeks, you know, you probably would be transferred to hospital. Uh, not so in the state of Louisiana. Uh, actually, no, I think you're right. Oh. So, at, so my midwife told me at 42 weeks, yeah, because that was, I told her my other worry. I said, for some reason, I feel like I'm going to go over because I ovulated. However, it, I have not regularly ovulated. So I don't think, you know, the date of which, the timing. So oh, yeah, the way the they calculate it is, you know, it's they start at the last day of your first period. They're the last, the first day of your last period, right? And so, which is fine, but I'm not ovulating. So that's totally irrelevant. And so I was like, look, I have a feeling that I'm going to go over my due date because of, because I didn't have an, I wasn't ovulating. And she said, okay, well, we're, we'll worry about that around 40 weeks. She said, but around 42 weeks, she's like, don't worry, you know, we'll do everything in our power to induce you and make sure they don't have a hospital birth. And I said, okay, still not helping. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's, that's an incredible amount of stress that's not ever talked about because you, you as a woman growing a baby, you don't have control if you want to home birth with a midwife, unless you drink castor oil and, and do natural inductions, which have mm-hmm. so many risks that there's no such thing as natural induction. It is induction. It's so risky. And that's an incredible amount of mental stress that's on you, a pregnant woman that's affecting your baby. And it's all just to maintain this licensed midwife. That's a yeah, lot and of stress. Yeah, especially yeah, for women that want to have births or want to give birth at a birthing center at home you know like yeah that's added stress because i mean there's no such thing as a it's a it's not a due date it's a guessing date and you know baby's going to come whenever baby's going to come and you know so many women they end up having cesareans because they get induced and you know the body is not dilating well the body's not dilating when you get induced because your body's not ready to have that baby. That baby's not ready to enter that world. And so, so many doctors say, okay, well, we need to cut you open. We need to cut you open because there's an emergency. Something's not right. You're not dilating. No, no. Your body is telling you it's not ready to have this baby. But the doctors don't see it that way. They see it as an emergency. And so then you get a cesarean and then women have, you know, traumatic births or birthing experiences that they don't want to have. And it's just, the birthing system is, is, is backwards and then yeah when you have a certified midwife you know they want to do their best to give you you know the pregnancy and birth that you want but they're still they still have to follow the guidelines and so yeah having a an unlicensed midwife and just that took so much stress off me i knew that i did not have to worry about anything that she you know she didn't force me to you know while i was in labor you know she kept asking me if i wanted to be checked and i said no 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 Okay, so yeah, so I get this midwife from Mississippi and she's awesome. She doesn't make me do anything. And she said, you know, are you sure that you, the one thing she did kind of 
you know, want to reassure, make sure that I understood was, you know, gestational diabetes, you know, is it can end up being an emergency during pregnancy. And I said, you know, I understand that, but I don't have any symptoms of gestational diabetes. I don't have any blood sugar imbalances. You know, I don't get headaches. I don't feel, you know, I don't get dizzy. I don't have ringing in my ears. I don't like, there's no part of me, you know, there's no symptom of gestational. Oh, I missed the part. Okay. So first, yeah, I said, you know, there's no, I'm not getting tested for gestational diabetes. I know I don't have it. I didn't have it in my first pregnancy. I know I'm not going to have it now. What's that going to change? I eat healthy. You know, I exercise. I know I do not have it. And she said, okay, that's fine. I'm, I'm, you know, that's it. I'm not going to mention any more of it. And so, so I can't believe I missed this. Okay. So when I got pregnant the second time and I went to that OB's office, okay, they, I took a urine test, right? Because that's what you take a urine test every time you go see the doctor during pregnancy. They called me a week later and said, I had tested positive for gestation or for groupie strep. And I said, what? How is that? When you're like eight. Yeah. And I said, I said, I'm sorry. I don't, I didn't get swabbed. I said, how do they know if I have groupie strep? And she said, oh, through your urine. (laughs) And so when you get groupie strep tested, okay, you get swabbed you don't pee in a cup because I mean that bacteria can literally come from anywhere I, I mean, uh, uh, and I would they're like you know we need you to come pick up your antibiotics um, you know we'll send it to your farm your pharmacist and you know you can go pick it up at Walgreens and I said okay no I didn't do that so I told my midwife about that and she said okay well as long you know I told her about how I tested positive for groupie strep and she was even like they tested you that early? I said, yes. And with my urine, she's like, well, that is very inaccurate. And she's like, you know, the reason why you get tested so late in um, pregnancy is because the bacteria in your vaginal canal is always changing. So groupie strep can be found in your intestines. It can be found in your rectum. It can be found in your vaginal canal. So I may have tested for groupie strep. It may have come from my butt for all we know. I mean, who was to say that it was in my vaginal canal? So, so she, um, said, you know, you know, what you can do to prevent, you know, a groupie strep infection. She said, you know, just take baths with vinegar. And she says, she suggested a few other things. I said, okay, that's fine. But I'm not personally, I'm not worried about it. You know, I know the statistics. It's like less than 1%. It's like 0.000538 percent chance that you know something could happen to my baby if I had groupie if I had tested positive for groupie strep so I didn't even take precautions with that because I was not worried um it's also just the weirdest mind fuck to be mm-hmm. so terrified about certain viruses or bacteria when our entire body mm-hmm. is millions of bacteria yeah. and millions of viruses so the fact that mm-hmm. they like choose this like one-off bacteria to be fearful of when mm. our body itself is a bacteria and millions of bacteria, yeah, and group, like I, no, I can't and groupie get strep, it like that <laughs> certain strain of bacteria, it's it's so inconsistent in our body. I mean, one day we can have it, and one day you know we could test positive, and one day we could test negative for it. And that's the thing when you know women test positive, and you know at the thirty, let's see, women get tested between thirty five and thirty seven weeks for groupie strep. Okay, so those women that test positive automatically have to go on an IV drip of antibiotics when they're in labor. Okay, well, 
what if they're negative? What if they, you know, don't have that bacteria? It's totally possible. It's 100% possible that, you know, they do not have that bacteria strand in their vaginal canal to infect baby. But the hospital saying, you know what? You have to be on antibiotics just in case. Just in case because they put the fear of God in you. They put the fear of your baby's death in you. Well, yes. because of and, their liability, know, though. But most women don't know this, but you can tell them no. You can tell them to, you know, pound sand. You can say, I'm I'm not taking these antibiotics. You know, I'll sign whatever you want me to, but I'm not taking these antibiotics. So you 100% do not have to do anything that you're not comfortable with in a hospital setting. Because it's also something crazy. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's like every 12 hours you're getting more and more and more it's not just one dose for the antibiotics time. it's continuing no. yeah you yeah it's it's a constant drip of antibiotics um all right so the plan was we hadn't moved yet so the plan was i was going to give birth at my um, in-laws house and they live an hour from us so my mother came into town a few days before i was due um just because i had my daughter on my due date, like one o'clock in the morning on my due date. So, you know, I was thinking maybe I'll be lucky enough and I'll have my son on, you know, on his due date. That was not the case. So during my mother's stay, as I had mentioned, her and I's relationship, you know, great mom, but we have some murky waters. So she's here for a week and she's stressing me out and she's basically you know trying to convince me to induce myself with castor oil um she's like you know go just you know go get acupuncture done she's like that's what i did and i was like no just he's gonna come when he's gonna come just leave it i said you know according to my due date you know i'm 40 weeks and four days i said but you know my ovulation was off and i just he's gonna come when he's gonna come um so it's going on i'm 41 weeks and I'm like, all right, you know, I need to, I like felt my body was like, all right, you need to walk. My body was telling me you need to walk for some reason. I just like had this craving to walk. And so, you know, me and my mom, we went on um, a couple walks that day when I was really craving to walk around, even though walking around made me super tired, but that's, you know, what my body was asking for me. So the next day went on some more walks that evening we went on an evening walk and I started having light contractions. This was probably around five o'clock. Um, then, so I call, or I called my midwife and she's like, all right, look, she's like, just, you know, wait it out. She said, if you really want me to, I'll come meet you at your in-laws. She said, but, you know, let's wait until they get more intense. So then around midnight, they started getting a little bit more intense, but they weren't really anything terrible. And I get back labor. Um, my labor starts in the front and then it, it works its way in the back. So I was still having abdominal labor. It wasn't, I could still talk through the contractions, but I was getting nervous. You know, I just wanted to be in a comfortable setting. And, um, you know, I had my husband and my kid and my mom. And I was like, all right, she, I told my medivite, I said, you know, I'm going to go over to my in-laws and I'm just going to rest over there, um, you know, just in case. Because I was, you know, I had that state of mind because I've read so many birth stories that, you know, I could possibly have this baby like on the way there accidentally or, you know, I end up having at home or I just thought maybe like this labor was going to go a lot faster because I was going to be in a home setting. I was going to be in a comfortable setting. So I had just assumed, you know, that it was going to, it was going to go quick. So we made our way over to my in-laws and I called the midwife 
And I said, you know, my contractions seemed to be getting stronger. My water had not broken yet. Um, I guess still talk. And so she said, okay, I'm going to make my way over there. She lives two hours away. So two hours later, she comes. You know, nothing's changed. Water still isn't broken. Um, she has me lay down on the bed, and she puts a peanut-shaped ball in between my legs. And she instructs me to lay on my side and that this ball is going to help open my cervix up. So it, it kind of felt like a, kind of like an induction tool, kind of, but... Not really, because it was really just opening my cervix up, you know, just with, you know, keeping my legs open. Um, so let's see, this is at three o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, I still am having contractions. They're between like five and eight minutes for a few more hours. Um, probably around 11 o'clock, they really started getting intense. I could start feeling them in my back. My midwife, very hands-off, you know, I told her, I originally wanted a water birth. That was what I had my heart set on. I really, really wanted a water birth. However, that wasn't happening at my in-laws. There was not enough space. The bathtub, my in-laws bathtub, you know, the midwife couldn't, you know, she midwives need access all the way around um, a tub to give birth or a pool. And, she, you know, the, the tub was leaned against the wall, so she couldn't do that. So I ended up um, laboring in the bed and I stayed in the bed the entire time. Um, so my back labor was getting more intense, more intense. At some point I just started roaring. Like I couldn't, I, I didn't know when one contraction started and when stopped. And my mom said, you know, during, in between my contractions, which were only a couple minutes apart, she said, I did, I would fall asleep and then I would wake up and I would start roaring again. There was no position. I tried getting on the floor I tried using the yoga ball. I tried um, the bed. My in-laws' guest room bed has um, a metal like has a metal um, back to it, and the only thing that brought me comfort was being on my knees and grasping that metal um, railing. And so I went through the waves. I mean, I just at some point I felt like I was tearing in half. I could feel my hips separating. I could feel my spine. I could feel as he was moving down my birth canal. And I was cursing. I was literally saying the F word. I mean, every time I had a contraction, I was roaring and cursing and pleading. And at some point, I, I wasn't crying. Like, I think the pain is was so extreme that it's 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 not the the pain where you where it makes you cry. It's the pain that makes you just scream. And so I was probably, that was probably happening for an hour. Um, and then finally the midwife was like, okay, I can, I can see him. I can see him in your birth canal. I can, I can see his head. She's like, I, you know, you just need a couple pushes and you know, he's going to be out. Hold on. At this, at this point when you're screaming and you feel like your body's tearing in two, this is the opposite of kind of what you expected with like a blissful Instagram <sighs> yeah. birth. So where, what was your mental state? Like, were you, did you have any fear spirals of like, something's wrong? This isn't how it's supposed to be. Um, what was that like? I was heartbroken. Like while I was screaming my head off, I was like, oh my God, this is not what I envisioned. I thought that my contractions were going to be, you know, I thought I was, one, I thought, you know, I was, 
I thought for sure I wasn't going to have back labor. I was like, oh my God. Like I had even made my own candles for my birth. Like I had bought beeswax. I infused the beeswax. I made candles. Those didn't, I didn't even get to light those. I was like so heartbroken. I was like, oh my God, I thought that, you know, being in a more comfortable setting was going to just make everything easier. Um, you know, yeah, for for nine months, I was watching birthing videos, all these amazing women giving births in every single different, in bathtubs, in cars, on floors, on beds, you know, you name it, these women were giving birth. And it was it was blissful. It was, you know, they, you know, were in pain, but they weren't really in pain. You know, they were, it was like they were in, it was an out-of-body experience, but it was for them just, it was, it was, I don't know, it was magical for them. And that's kind of what I had envisioned. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I, I have this situation where I get to control everything. My midwife's awesome. She's not going to question me. She's going to let me do, she's going to let me have a physiological birth. She's not going to interrupt me. And I thought just that peace of mind was going to change my birth. And it didn't. Yeah, you, yeah, you really attached to it being that one way that you see on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, Instagram, you know, birthing videos are kind of like anything else on Instagram. They're beautified there. You don't see the nitty gritty, dirty parts of birth. I mean, you see the dirty parts, but you don't, you don't hear the women screaming. You don't hear them roaring. You don't, you don't hear them begging and pleading for it to be over. And so while I was screaming my head off, I was definitely disappointed. I remember I was, I wasn't crying, but I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. Like I just, I was, I was literally heartbroken when I was screaming my head off. So, um, at some point I was in my head and I was like, I, I want to ask to go to the hospital. I, I need, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. I can't do this. And then in the back of my mind, as I'm saying, I can't do this. I remember reading those birth stories and about women saying, you know, when you get to that point where you think that you're going to die and where you think that you can't do it, that's it. That is when you're about to have that baby. You need to hold on to that thought. And I just kept thinking to myself, okay, you're almost there. I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm breaking apart in two. I'm so disappointed. I'm heartbroken. This is not how I imagined it. I was so depressed during that moment. I, I kept thinking, but you're almost there. Like, just keep thinking about what those women said. Just keep thinking about what those women said. And then that's right after after I had that thought, you know, that's when she told me I can see the baby's head. And, you know, his head wasn't out of me. Like, and in that moment when she said she could see his head in my, in my canal, she's, I was thinking about those birthing videos and you know, those birthing videos where you see the head just sticking out. I was like, I am. And cause, and you have the midwife say, okay, I see the head, the head's right there. All you do one more push. And I'm like, this is not happening to me. This baby's coming out one push. I'm not going to have a head sticking out. I'm not going to go through this pain. I am, I'm, that baby's coming out. And so I, I don't really remember experiencing the ring of fire. I was so focused on getting that baby out one push. And so she's like, all right. So during the process of, you know, trying to push your baby out, you're my body. And I would imagine most women's bodies, you don't have to, you don't have to coach yourself. You know, all these birthing classes that teach you how to push. So. I would never recommend them to any woman because your body knows how to push. And how I compare pushing is to vomiting, which I know is completely absurd and weird, but your body is literally trying to vomit out this baby. Your reflexes are pushing for you. There's no thinking about it. There's no trying. Like you literally, like your body is forcing this baby out of you. And I did not have that, um, that, uh, that, um, that reflex, the, yeah. yeah. 
the fetal ejection. Thank reflex. you. Yes, I did not have that, but I had that that you know that that primal feeling to just push. Like my body has pushed out a million babies before, and so that's well. It's just it. I mean, when women do describe it, it is like puking. When when you know you have to puke, mm-hmm. there's nothing you can no. do about it. No, like you know, I've 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 heard stories of women saying that you know doctors will like push their babies back, like if they're like giving birth, like if they're about to like push out this baby, like their baby. The, these doctors will tell these women, no, you're not. They will push. I've I've heard stories about you know doctors pushing babies back in. Don't know how this possible, but yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I basically just like. My body pushed this baby out for me and it was in one push. I made sure like I gave it all my might and I threw him out and there he, he came and the midwife scooped him up and, you know, held him against me. And I was, I gave birth to him and I was, I started crying as soon as, as soon as he came out, I just started sobbing. I was crying and crying and I just didn't stop crying for the first like five minutes. I was shaking. I was crying. I I had just gone through this experience and, you know, with my first one, I didn't have that experience. That first one, I wasn't even, I wasn't even mentally there. I was gone. I was in a different state of mind. I was drugged up. And so I was not expecting this, you know, on top of those birthing videos, you know, those, you see those moms that are so joyful, they pick up their baby right away and they start crying, but it's happy tears and they're just so full of love. And that was not me. I was a mess. I... I, it, I, my, all my expectations were crushed. I was shaking. I was literally vibrating all my hormones, all my adrenaline from having, having that back labor and just disappointment. And, and I told my midwife, you know, they held him against me while I had my moment. I was like, please just, I need my moment. I need, I just need five minutes. I need a few minutes to myself. I was like, I can't, I physically can't hold him. That's how bad I was shaking. And I was emotionally erect. And sack a few minutes um you know they took him from me because you know as i you know i could feel i was trying to you know my body wanted to push the placenta out um and so you know i sat there for a minute and once again i had that urge and so i you know released the placenta and you know they gave me levi and i held him and you know i i brought him up to my breast and started breastfeeding and i just like had like instant relief i was like oh okay, this is real. I just had a baby. Yeah, it didn't go as planned, but he's perfect and he's breastfeeding and, you know, nothing bad happened and I didn't go to the hospital like I wanted to. I talked myself out of it and here I am. I actually got like the birth that I wanted but didn't want. And um, it's complex. It's so like after you have that, like, yeah, you just went through, like, even though you gave, even though you did the most normal thing in the world, it's still slightly traumatic in a way because you have so many different emotions going through you at one time and then you're just holding this like little creature that you grew from a speck and you birthed and you worked so hard and and there there he was especially because you you think about it for nine ten months usually about that day, how it will mm-hmm. go and how you want it to go. And there's such a mind investment mm-hmm. on it. And that's just the component that people don't talk about that I don't hear on birth podcasts that I that 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 it the emotional complexity of attaching to expectations mm-hmm. and, and, you know, trying to manifest your dream birth. Well, the thing with birth is 
you are a co-creator, but it's also the greatest surrender. Oh, yeah. No, you have no like, control. Yeah. Like you do because you chose to be at home. You have certain level of control, but your baby is a co-creation process of birth and your baby chooses the birthday and the time mm. and and so much and their positioning in their in your womb like there's so much that is the baby as well it's not just about the woman and the mother mm-hmm. and then you add the mother's emotional component of you know mind attachments and expectation of needing it and wanting it to look one way but there's God, there's your baby, there's so many other elements and birth all the time is a lesson. It's a lesson of trust and surrender, which you still had. It's just not how you wanted it to look. Yeah, no, it's definitely, and that's why I think I was so heartbroken during the processes because yeah, like I, you know, all these expectations and the pain and like I knew that I was going to be in pain, but you know, when you have birth with an epidural it's you know it's you just you can't like my mom did say you can't even imagine the pain that you experience during birth like there's nothing imaginable you you can't you can't imagine it and you know when you're roaring in pain it is you know you're it's a warrior's cry because you are you're you're literally fighting I mean you're fighting your body you're fighting with your body to push out this baby and but also fighting your mind yeah because you wanted to go to the hospital like the ego wants wants the pain meds the Mm -hmm. ego wants a savior the ego wants an easy way out and we always have that mind with us 24 7 all the time and especially in birth yeah especially when you've it's it go ahead it's like your it's your enemy mm-hmm. kind of especially when the fir- when especially when you've had a different type of birth where yeah you're medicated so you know that there's an easier side you know that it could have been easier but you chose the harder path because you know that you know, what did we have before modern medicine like that is biologically normal you like i knew what i was getting myself into but i also knew like i could have taken the easy way out and you know i put myself in that position but but also you put your baby first mm-hmm. because you your baby was born sober mm-hmm. and your baby wasn't born on like fentanyl and opioids. Mm-hmm. And like that is a mother's love, mm-hmm. in my opinion, is is that's what you gave your your baby. As Absolutely. Well. And I wanted I wanted him to be birthed in an environment that was quiet and where there wasn't bright white LED light shining his face. And I wanted to have him experience my warmth and my breast milk and not, you know, latex gloves all over him, not a bath. I didn't want him to be touched by other people. You know, I wanted him to sit in my arms as long as I, you know, he sat in my arms for two hours. He, his placenta was attached to him for two hours and we just sat there and we bonded. We did skin to skin. You know, I was able to just, you know, everyone left me alone. I didn't let anyone in the room with me. It was just me and him for two hours. And, you know, that I think that's, was the biggest difference. So, this time around, I don't have postpartum anxiety. I don't have any mental health issues. I don't have breastfeeding issues. And I chalk it all up to the fact that I had a home birth and I was able to bond with my baby and I did not have any medical interventions. And I think that is that is the difference. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, women can't have traumatic home births or women can't have, you know, emergencies happen at home birth or breastfeeding issues. But I think a huge factor 
that stems from all of those issues in many, many cases is the medical intervention. You know, it's, it's mothers being babies being taken away from their mothers at birth. You know, it's those bright white lights. It's the doctors, it's the nurses, it's the sterile smell. It's a room that has all, you know, all these machines and white walls. And it's not, that's not, you're giving birth. You're not having a medical procedure done, you know? And I think that right there messes with your oxytocin, all of that, you know? Yeah. So do you feel like that postpartum time, how long were you at your in-laws? Like one week, two weeks? No. So I told my midwife, she's like, okay, so how long do you think you want to stay at your in-laws to recover? And I said, what do you mean? I want to have the baby and then I want to go home. And she's like, oh, let's, you know, <laughs> let's just play it by ear. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, so I was only there. So I had him around two o'clock in the afternoon and we did end up spending the night. And my first night I did co-sleep. So I was up probably 36 hours, right? From from the morning before I had my baby, I was up all night and until two o'clock. So I didn't go to sleep until probably seven o'clock PM. So I was up for a while and I co-slept him with him that night, even though I was exhausted, even though I had spent 12 hours in labor, even though I hadn't slept in two days, I slept with him in my arms. And I know a lot of fear in women is, you know, crushing their babies, suffocating their babies, but that, that's not like your maternal brain, as soon as you have that baby, switches on. And I woke up in the same position I fell asleep with him cradled in my arms. And um, so the next day, um, my midwife came, checked on us. And then I think we left around one o'clock. So. How many months postpartum are you three. right now? Mm-hmm. Okay. So your postpartum with this baby is just complete opposite. Oh, complete opposite. I mean, even though I'm stressed, like, even though, you know, we're in the middle of moving and our house has been up for on the market for seven months and my husband's been in Mississippi for seven months, even though I have all of this against me that should be maybe triggering some postpartum anxiety, it, it doesn't. It doesn't because I told myself after I had my baby, look, you know, your postpartum anxiety was most definitely triggered from your hospital experience. You, you were traumatized. And that's not going to happen this time around because you have control. You're going to give birth in a comfortable place. You're going to have a midwife that's going to listen to you. Your baby's going to be safe, unharmed. Nobody's going to pressure you, guilt you. Um, and so, yeah. And so, yeah, no, I'm, I feel great. I mean, you know, obviously three months, you can only feel so great. And yeah, I still have brain fog some days. And, you know, but my experience is total 360. Yeah. But the fact that let's speak on a little bit to how you are single parenting right now, many days a week, because you're trying to sell your house and your husband's in another state. How, how are you not in like such victimhood about not having a village, having to do it all by yourself? Like how, how, how are you dealing with that mentally? So, yeah. So I don't have any family members to help me. I have a few friends, but you know, they have their own lives, their own families. Um, and yeah, so my husband has been Mississippi for seven months. We see him once a week. Um, we hold on to those two days like no other. Um, I have a five-year-old and she is extremely helpful. She you know, was an only child for five years. And so it is an adjustment. Um, and you know, I, every night or every you know morning I wake up, I, I co-sleep. So the five-year-old and three-month-old sleep with us. 
Um, this has been going on since he was born. Um, you know, my husband was home for a few days and then my mom was here for a week. And then after that, it was just me and the kids. And it's definitely been an adjustment. Um, my five-year-old's used to getting all the attention. She's used to having mommy all to herself. And that's not the case anymore. Um, and, you know, having a newborn, you know, he's, you know, always wants to be, you know, attached to my breast or me holding him. Um, so, yeah, so I... I don't have any help, but my mindset is, you know, what you have two kids, you know, that my five-year-old, she looks up to me. She, I mean, she is, I don't think people realize, you know, that kids, when they say kids are a sponge, kids are like literal, like I will do things. And then the next moment she's doing whatever I had just done. And I didn't even know that she was watching me. And so my mindset is, yeah, I'm doing this alone five days a week and yeah, I have to wake up and take care of a five-year-old and a newborn and I have to feed her breakfast and I have to feed him and I have to give him naps and I have to make sure that she's not losing her, her shit over, you know, not having enough tension. But, you know, I'm lucky to be able to have this opportunity to stay home with my kids. I'm lucky enough that my husband makes enough money to where I have this opportunity. You know, I could be going back to work in a few weeks and I don't get to see my kids grow up. I don't get to homeschool my daughter. I don't get to see my son, you know, every day it's something different. He starts, you know, goo goo gagging. He, you know, starts smiling. He starts laughing, you know, has different sensations, experiences, you know. And if I were to sit there and say, oh, poor me, like I'm sitting in my house, the five-year-old and a newborn and life sucks and, you know, boo-hoo, what, what's, who's that going to benefit? Not my five-year-old. What, is she going to grow up and be in a similar situation? Is she going to play victim? Is she going to, how is this going to affect her men, mental health? Is she going to, she's happy go lucky. If I were to sit around feeling sorry for myself, is would she take on my energy, you know? And same goes for my newborn. I mean, he feels my energy. I know he does. And my stress, you know, stress hormones go through your breast milk. They get transferred through breast milk. And so would me stressing out about, stressing out about being alone and parenting, you know, is that worth having a, my newborn getting my, you know, cortisol hormones? No, you know, it's, I look at it as if, you know, it's a blessing. I get to do this, you know, you know, so many women don't you get to have this experience and yeah, it sucks, but it's what, what's the point? What, what's not going to get, it's not going to get anywhere, anyone, anywhere playing victim, victim. You, know, you don't learn from being a victim. You stay in the same spot and you don't grow what's the point of living if you're not growing and learning from your experiences and appreciating what you have? Because my situation could be a lot worse. And I think about that all the time. Yeah, it's not fortunate, my situation, but it could be so much worse. I mean, my husband could be dead and I could just be parenting all by myself. I think victimhood also stems from, you know, not taking care of yourself. Like, yeah, it's hard to take care of yourself as a mom of a newborn and a five-year-old whose husband isn't here. But there's still little things that I can do to, you know, to nourish myself, you know, eating is a huge thing with mental health, you know, like if I was sitting around eating chips and cookies and garbage food, that's not helping my mental health, you know, that's just making me feel worse about myself, because all that, all of those refined sugars and oils, and, you know, just it doesn't make you feel good. Um, and same goes for, you know, getting outside, you know, how many moms 
are out there stuck inside. You know, go outside, you know, and go outside. That is, that is half of it going, just going for a walk, you know, get your baby out there, get your kids out there. Um, I think that's, you know, I think nutrition has a lot to do with when people play victim, you know, they're not all mentally there because their diets just, it's not like diet's a key part to mental health, you know, and victimhood is mental health. I think victimhood is totally 100% has to do with mental health. Yeah. Yeah. You're, if you're, if your minerals are completely depleted, like you don't really stand Mm, a chance. No, not at all. I also kind of heard you say the way I feel it in my body is you're choosing to not be in victimhood because if you can be regulated and solid, you know, you're not perfect, but if you could be solid in your mental health and with your energy as a mom, you're setting the tone Mm -hmm. for your house. So if you're going to seep in victimhood and project your stress onto your kids and be mean to them because you feel shitty, which is what most parents do, they feel shitty about their own life and then they blame the kids or they project onto the kids. Um, But if you as the parent are in victimhood and feel so shitty, you set the tone for the house most of the time. Mm And, and I think you, you're just kind of saying that you're investing in your nervous system regulation and mental health so that the rest of the house is also calm because then what's the alternative? Everything's a basket case. Everyone is a basket Mm -hmm. case. Yeah. And kids, you know, young kids, kids in general need to be regulated. You know, they need their routine. They need, you know, they need a strong parent figure because they're learning from us. You know, they're learning how to be human from us, you know? They have instincts, but they're learning how to be human from their parents. We are guides. We, you know, if you choose to have a child, you're choosing to be this, this person's guide for the rest of their life. You're their leader. You know, you lead by example. And if you, yeah, if you play victim, your child's going to play victim. And then your child's going to teach their children to play victim. And then it's just a line, a generation of victim, 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 victim. The next thing I want to talk about with you is... I think you were parenting kind of on autopilot maybe for a few years with your daughter. I don't know when you started shifting, but then you started looking at the way you're parenting because most people parent on autopilot. They just parent the way their parents did. Maybe there's a few improvements, but you were like, "Uh, I don't want to be parenting like my mom. And I think I am. So what do you want to say about that journey? Okay. So yeah, for the first two years when I had postpartum anxiety, I was definitely on autopilot. Um, you know, my daughter was two, so, you know, how much, you know, discipline can you have a two-year-old? Um, but it was really starting to click when she went through her hitting phase, you know, she would hit me and then I would grab her hand and I would tap it and I'd be like, you know, you don't hit. And then I'm like, wait a second, I'm telling her not to hit me yet. I'm slapping her wrist for hitting me and I'm grabbing her wrist for hitting me. That does not make any sense. What? So that was like the first time it clicked. And then, you know, as she was getting a little bit older, you know, she went through a phase where she did not want to, I, I'll always feel guilty for this, but there was a phase where she wanted to sleep with us. And, you know, my mom, you know, was like, look, you can't have her sleep with you because she's going to sleep with you until she's 20. And then what? And you're creating bad habits, you know, the typical things that you hear from bad information. Which is is parenting in fear because you think a behavior right now you're in fear of the future. So that's a side note. Keep going. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah. So you know, my mom was like, no, you're going to create bad behaviors. You can't let her sleep with you. And so, you know, she, my daughter kept getting out of bed and she kept trying to sleep with us. And so I put a baby gate in her room. And so, yeah. Yep. And I would just, she would see the gate and she would try to break through it and she wouldn't. And then she would just go back to sleep. And some nights I would hear her crying and then she'd go back to sleep. And then one night I was like, what am I doing? She wants to come sleep with us for a reason and preventing her from doing that. I'm listening to my mom who's given me so many bad, so much bad advice over the past few years about parenting and pregnancy. And I was like, what am I doing? So I took the gate off. And I let her come sleep in bed with us. And then, you know, it was just kind of, you know, now that she's, well, so when she was four, you know, she really started acting out and needed some boundaries set and had meltdowns and tantrums. And, you know, I would put her in the corner. Well, that wasn't working. So then I would put her in her bedroom. Well, that wasn't working. So none of these disciplines, you know, I, I put her, um, you know, I would threaten her. And I'm like, wait a sec, this is what my mom did for me. And yeah, maybe it worked for me, but it worked for me because I was probably slightly traumatized and, you know, it wasn't working for my daughter. I'm like, okay, there's got to be more than one way to parent. There's going to be one, there has to be more ways to, you know, set boundaries and discipline your child than, you know, threatening them. You know, my mom used to threaten me with the belt. She used to whack me with the belt. Oh, I never did that to my daughter. I would never, but... But intimidation. But yeah, she would intimidate me. And, you know, for me, that was my personality. It worked for my daughter. That didn't work. And, you know, sometimes it did work. But, like, I felt guilty, you know. I was like, what am I doing? This is my child. Like, I – that's not – I don't want to be that type of parent. So – But it – but but those tactics sometimes work just because you are making a little being frozen in mm-hmm. fear and you're dysregulating them. Mm-hmm. And – you're you're slowly killing their soul from fear. Oh yeah, and I I thought about like the past two years with this whole COVID thing. You know how many people did what they were told because because they were out of fear, and that was like the first thing that popped into my mind. I'm like, the only reason why she would listen to me if any of this did work was because I'm putting fear into her. Well, then I'm just gonna teach her to be compliant when she gets older, and as long as somebody's putting you know fear in the, into her, that it's you know that it's so I that's how you create that's how you create herd mentality mm-hmm. is you make people so afraid that they comply and they fall in line, mm-hmm. which is what we saw with the COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. Everyone fell in line. Mm-hmm. The smallest percentage didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't want her to be that small percentage. And so then um, I ended up stumbling upon on Instagram a few like gentle parenting accounts and I didn't necessarily agree with those I think when it comes to conscious parenting I think it's that I don't think it's gentle parenting I don't think it's physical discipline I think it's you know what sits right with you you know how like you you need to sit and think okay every child has a different personality and so when it comes to gentle parenting I see so many accounts say you know I don't tell my child to say please or thank you I you know I just, you know, say those words to them and then they automatically say it back. Okay, well, that's all fine and dandy, but not every child's like that, you know? So, like, when it comes to my child, I try that tactic. It did not work. I have to remind her to say please and thank you and to have manners. Um, And so a lot of these accounts will say, um, you know, instead of, I don't know. I feel like 
when it comes well you well i mean with with gentle parenting like you don't have to comply with with that umbrella of a term of gentle parenting it's it's finding your own way and and you is like conscious parenting is about being present with everything yeah and what works for your child and what sits well with you and and you know and children are supposed to be i mean that's the thing about parent like about kids you know they're not supposed to sit down and be quiet and they're supposed to be obnoxious and rambunctious and energetic and go with the flow and you know yeah they need to have boundaries in some settings but in general i think our expectations of children is just too high i mean they're kids they're kids and you know they sit in classrooms for eight nine hours a day and then they come home and we expect them to act a certain way well no i mean they no they're kids and, you know, it's our job to teach them because that's what we are. We're their teachers. We're their guides. Yeah, we're their parents, but we're still their guides, you know? And so... Well, yeah, because you were saying that everything you do, your your daughter eventually models, even when you didn't know she was looking. Yeah, like, um, like sometimes I use air quotes and I don't really ever use air quotes towards her because she's five. <laughs> But I do use them towards my husband. And so the one day she starts using air quotes, I'm like, where did you, you must have learned that from me, but I don't remember ever showing you air quotes because why would I use air quotes with you? So it's, yeah, it's like little stuff like that, but it's also big stuff, you know? It's like, you know, my daughter's really great at, um, at not doing chores, but just helping me. So she's great at, she's five. She loves vacuuming. She loves sweeping. She loves taking out the trash. She loves helping me clean. She loves helping me clean. Oh my gosh. And she's so helpful. And like, I never had to force that upon her. You know, I never had to bribe her. You know, that was one thing. Well, because they, they naturally want to model us. It's, mm-hmm. it's us that think they don't mm-hmm. want to help us, but they naturally want to do everything adults do. Mm-hmm. And when you force them to do something, it doesn't make it, doesn't make them want to do it anymore. You know, like when you force things on kids, it doesn't make it fun for them. And when you put a price tag on it, you know, when you try to bribe them, it doesn't make them, it doesn't make it fun. And then they feel obligated to it or they'll only do it for the bribe. And yeah, so my parenting has definitely gotten better over the years. Um, I'm definitely not perfect. And there are days when I definitely lose my crap and I freak out and I have my own meltdown, not in front of her, but you know. But the days that you do have a f- f- have a meltdown, like obviously it happens to all of us, are there certain components that you know, you know, like when, when a parent is dysregulated, anyone in the room, like I literally have a cat and if I'm dysre- dysregulated, my cat annoys the shit out of me. It's anything in the, in the room that you're in when you are in fight or flight like that's what you can lose your mind over whether it's a baby a cat a grandpa like it doesn't matter it's yeah well yeah so do you do you notice any commonalities or is it just like the phase of the moon sometimes and you just lose your shit no (laughs) so it's like based on like my like it's based on my perception so yeah so one day my you know my daughter can be doing the same thing as she's doing the next day but the next day you know i'm slightly more stressed out or not having a good day and even though she's doing the same thing she did yesterday it's just bothers me it just gets under my skin and I just freak out well okay 
that's when I, that's when I stop and say, okay, look, you're just feeling triggered by her because you're having a really bad day. And even though she's just being kid and she's just trying to be sweet and she's just trying to be, make you laugh, or she's just trying to be, you know, a good big sister, whatever she's doing in that moment that I feel triggered from, I try each time to stop and realize that it's not her. It is me. It is 100% me. I mean, yeah, she definitely has some behaviors that, you know, need to be, you know, well, she needs to have some boundaries around. She needs to figure out how to regular regulate herself with some behaviors. But most of her behaviors are just normal. She's just being a kid. I think, once again, so many of us have such high expectations for our children. And they're just kids. And we are literally going to, like you said, we're going to create these soulless children that are just going to do whatever they're told and they're going to be, you know, feel worried and sad and they're going to want to tiptoe around other people because they're afraid of making people angry. Like my daughter, her newest phase is, you know, she's worried about making me worried. Well, it's, I know it's just a phase, but I have to keep reminding her, don't worry. You just need to be you. You can't be afraid to make anyone mad or, you know, you just got to do you. You're human. I'm human. It's all about the experience. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to discipline you. I'm not going to, you know, because you're worried, I guess. I don't know. Parenting is such a, I don't know. Yeah. It's a mirror. It's like, I'm, I'm sure you get handed a lesson literally every day, every hour, every hour, if not every like yeah. 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what's crazy is the lessons learning from like a three month old versus a five year old and that you learn from each of your kids daily, but they're just so different. And that's what changes constantly in parenthood, which is crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, there are so many variables when it comes to parenting, but that's why, you know, just sitting with yourself and figuring out how you want to show up as a parent and it's just like showing up to anything else, you know, you got to, if you're not doing it with meaning, if you're not, if you're not doing the best that you can, if you're not putting a hundred percent into it, even on your worst crappiest days, then, you know, what, what's the point? And what are you, I think, you know, from what I've learned from my mother is, you know, I don't think she realized when she raised us, like she was raised by my grandfather. He was a very tough individual and he was very rough on the boys and he was a little bit gentler on the girls, but it wasn't, you know, he still, you know, hit them with the bell. And my mom raised us the same way. And it, I just like where, like what happens to a parent when they don't see the wrongs? Like why my thing is like, why do we, why are these patterns continuously occurring you know like why is it just now that like this gentle parenting thing is a movement you know or conscious parenting like why did it take us this long to realize that children are children and that physically disciplining them we don't do that to adults we don't physically beat adults when they're not listening yeah there are repercussions you go to jail if you yeah do. but you're nobody's getting you know hit by the belt or being locked in a room i mean well jail but i mean nobody's you know 
Yeah, because children are less than mm-hmm. and in this society. And I think that's slowly changing because it's like, you know, an adult can hit, but a child can't. Mm-hmm. And an adult can yell at a mm-hmm. kid, but a, but a child can't yell. Mm-hmm. Because in our society, children are are less than human. Like, they're objects. They're less than. And so, and, and adults are like the gods. Mm-hmm. And I think that's slowly changing. And I think the gentle parenting movement is so amazing. I think some people are taking it in the most per- permissive way ever. And that's also crazy. But I, but I don't like using, you know... Like, I like using the word conscious yeah. parenting because it's par- it's parents recognizing mm-hmm. that they can either be in autopilot parenting mm-hmm. and literally do exactly what their parents did, or they can be present in the moment with their kids and actually think, oh, what am I actually teaching my child when I'm yelling mm-hmm. at them? I'm telling them that yelling is communication. And if I'm doing it, I'm modeling to them that they should do mm-hmm. it. Oh, yeah. You know many times, like, I just, like, my child, like, my daughter will yell at me, and then I'll be like, stop yelling. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Hold up. I'll yeah. stop myself and be like, okay, I'm sorry. I just told you to stop yelling, and then I yelled at you, and that wasn't right. I said, you know, instead of yelling, okay, just tell me what you need, or tap me on the shoulder if I'm not paying attention, grab my arm, grab my shoulder, tap me, whatever you need to do. I said, but you don't need to yell. You don't need to freak out. But once again, our expectations for children, like they're going to have their tantrums. They're going to have their freakouts. They're learning to be human. And we have to just be continuously forgiving of them because if we're not, it's just going to lead us to unconscious parenting, you know? Yeah, and be more like them because they forgive you Mm. every minute every day no matter how you treat them no matter if you freaked mm-hmm. out of them they don't hold it against you they don't do revenge mm-hmm. they don't hold a grudge for a week like they literally are unconditionally loving and forgiving and that's what i think is so like the saddest part about parents that don't parent their children that don't guide their children with love you know they kids trust 100 percent their parents they believe that you know, it doesn't matter your mother, father, whoever's taking care of you, you can beat the crap out of you and your child will still love you. And that's what I think is so twisted that these parents, like, I don't know if they're okay with it or if they don't realize it, but when they physically discipline their children, I mean, their children, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It's just like mind blowing that parents are okay with it. And then they still see that they still look their children, their children are still like, I love you. Even though you just hit me with the belt or you just whacked me across the face or. It's such un- it's such unconscious living mm. to project your own pain onto the sweetest, most mm. innocent being on this planet. Mm. And then be okay with it. it. It's it's the actual immaturity of an adult brain mm. To do that. And that's what I can't stand about adults being on a pedestal Mm -hmm. over children. Like this is what I can start just get ranting on. Mm -hmm. Because to inflict harm and manipulation and fear, fear intimidation Mm -hmm. tactics, all of that onto the sweetest, Mm -hmm. most innocent soul. Like that's straight from God. Mm -hmm. Like look at the immaturity of that adult brain Mm -hmm. to make you do that. That speaks volumes of the adult. Yeah. And it's basically like communism and parenting, you know, 
mean, that's, that's exactly what it, <laughs> it is. is. I mean, like you do as I say, not as I do. And it's my way or the highway. And if you don't, you're going to be punished and I'm going to put fear in you and you're going to learn. I think it's a, it, I, I'm going to say it's mental insanity. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. I agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Well, thanks for chatting with mm-hmm. me. We are going to do more because I can really start getting ranting on lots of oh, these things. Oh, and I can rant too. <laughs> I can I can rant and rant and rants for sure. But no, you're but story medicine like I don't know how many people want people just ranting and ranting, but story medicine to me is powerful. Just your story of your life of like where you were, where you are now. And in where you're going to be in one year, in two years. Like, that's exciting because you're going to be growing. Yeah, always growing. And if I'm not growing, then there's something wrong. <laughs>